Yippee-ki-yay, mother... Good Trash Genre Cast. Listen to me. You look like a... What? Radioactive camp. I wasn't supposed to... Look like a banana with a yeast infection. How did I come to this? Not again. I played Richard III. Five curtain calls. There were five curtain calls. I was an actor once. Damn it, now look at me. Look at me! I can't go out there and I want to say that stupid line one more time. I got, I got shorts, every fucking color. I got designer t-shirts. Who cares about the goddamn dance chip? I do. I ordered your corsage. It's an orchid. It was like $12. If it means anything now, I am so sorry. It's just instinctive. It was my bad. I was never a very good practical joker. So do you have any regrets? <laughs> Garfield, maybe. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where a bunch of people gather around a table and we talk about the films you'll never discuss in a film studies course, but we use film study analysis on them anyway. This week's film is Blade 2, which is an infomercial about documenting uh, how to uh, get various cut- cutlery and cookware into your kitchen and making the best smoothie of all time. But before we get into all of that, let's do some introductions to the disembodied voices around the table. To my left, sir, if you would. Hi, I'm Arthur Gordon. And I'm barely human. I'm a podcaster. That's an excellent point. Um, I totally agree. Uh, across the table, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and you clearly have no idea who you're fucking with. My name is Dustin Sells, and I like it when you talk dirty. And I'm so glad to be here with you all uh, talking Blade 2, Guillermo del Toro. This is a analysis show, not a review show, though, dear listeners. So we need to warn you. There will be spoilers, and we will be spoiling the buy one, get one free for three easy installments of 1999 that happens at the end of the film, but not yet. Before that, we'll have a synopsis from Voice of the Cinema, and then we'll move directly into our... Uh, Thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, and then spoilers ahoy will be in analysis at that point. So let's begin with that synopsis from the voice of cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir. Blade forms an uneasy alliance with the Vampire Council in order to combat the Reaper vampires who feed on vampires. That's right, the Vampire Nation and the Fire Nation get together with the Earth Nation and they somehow fight the Water Nation and uh, it's going to be very, very fun uh, as we discuss. Well, let's begin with our quick thought. <laughs> the seldom talked about Fifth Nation on Avatar, the last airbender. <laughs> so let's begin with those quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. What say you, Mr. Dalton Stewart? Well, I was the picker of the film. Um, this was my host pick for this month of sequels because it is one of my very favorite sequels. Um, I have very, very fond memories of Blade 2. Uh, I believe the first time I saw it was at a, a slumber party sleepover for a kid's birthday in like sixth grade. I was also in sixth grade. Um, <laughs> sure he was. <laughs> important, important detail. Uh, and it just, it just really stuck with me. Uh, I remember watching, uh, you know, I, I've always had a fascination with martial arts films and uh, I, I remember watching the original Blade film uh, with my father and, you know, really enjoyed that as well. I li- I've always liked vampires. I've always liked martial arts. When you put those two things together, I- I'm in. I'm sold. Um, but there was something about it, and I wouldn't realize till years later, the something about Blade Two that really stuck with me 
was the vision of Guillermo del Toro, was the creature design of this film, was the art direction, was del Toro's very specific vision for this franchise, uh, which, I mean, if you look at any of Blade or um, any of Guillermo del Toro's other works, particularly his uh, Hollywood efforts that he, you know, had more of a creative hand in other than just being the director, I'm thinking specifically of Hellboy, um, the costumes that the, um, one of the, the Daystalkers, what the fuck are they called? The, the Blood Pack. The Blood Pack. Uh, their, their tactical suits that they wear when they first encounter Blade, um, you know, look very similar to... Um, Abe Sapien? Not Abe Sapien. Um, the Nazi. Yeah. The Nazi know. Ninja. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know exactly. Kroner or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. They, they look very similar yeah. in design yeah. to that costume that he wears. Um, and then there's very much an insect quality to the mouths of the reapers and yeah. much very much playing into um you know del toro's fascination with the beautiful and the grotesque uh he has made and you know looking at the beautiful in nature and looking at how you can grotesquify it and how you know those two things often uh the scary and the beautiful often coexist in nature uh, he's made no qualms about the fact that the reaper's mouths look like genitalia uh he's said so many times um, I, but it's, and that, you know, that was those, those, those very specific, uh, artistic, you know, flourishes that I, you know, didn't occur to me when I was watching it as a 12 year old. I was just thinking, this is awesome. This is awesome. This is awesome. Uh, and realized, you know, many years later after I became a fan of Del Toro's work, the things that he did to give this film a personality of its own that really sets it apart from a lot of other sequels, a lot of other comic book films. Um, I think another really nice touch, uh, that this film has is the fact that CGI is used so sparingly and when it is used, it is used to bolster what you're seeing practically on screen. You know, there's the Reaper mouths are a combination of practical effects and computer generated effects. The fight scenes only go into CGI when it's something the stunt performers could not physically do themselves uh, or something that, you know, that it would just look wacky if you try to do it with wire work. Uh, and considering this movie's over 10 years old, I think the CGI's blended into the film very well. Uh, there's only one or two times I can think of that, you know, when they use CGI in the fight scenes and it looks yeah. a little ridiculous. Um, the fight that he has with Nissa at the very beginning yeah. uh, in front of the lights, when it goes to CGI, is a little wonky. Uh, but it goes to CGI two or three times in the fight with him and Jarek at the very end. Uh, and it looks great. Uh, and it just all, it really serves to show the power and, you know, the the fighting prowess and the supernatural powers that these characters have. Uh, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, if you haven't got around checking out Blade 2, you really should. Because uh, it's easily the best in that franchise. But honestly, it's it's a really kind of underappreciated and unsung uh, franchise, I think, in a lot of ways. Uh, both in terms of um, how fun they are, um, but also how funny they are. They really do have kind of a dark sense of humor, all of these films. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think they blend horror and action tropes together very well throughout these films. Um, and also Chris Christopherson's in it, and he's yes. so great. <laughs> Isn't he great? Yeah, he's good. Oh, yeah. Christopherson's the shit in this movie. Oh, he's so good. And Norman Reedus is great in it, too. And Ron Perlman's great in it, too. And Wesley Snipes is great in it, too. Uh, Wesley Snipes is a really funny guy, so seeing him play the stoic, you know, like, typical man-with-no-name type badass is really interesting if you have, you know, if you've seen White Men Can't Jump or uh, Passenger 57 or, you know... Under Under Siege, you know, all these other uh, movies where they play up the fact that Wesley Snipes is a very, he's got really good comedic timing. Um, they just underplay all of that in this film. He's just playing a, the classic stoic badass, which I think is really funny. So 
I, I'm a huge fan of this film. I give it eight UV grenades out of a possible ten. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down, review? Well, this is my first time to watch it, and so I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it saw it was very engaging. Mm-hmm. Uh, I kept I would reach for my phone, and then I would get drawn into the movie, which mm-hmm. doesn't always happen a lot. So it's a very engaging film, I think. I think that's the real test when you're watching a film at home. Yeah. If you if you can't get distracted by your telephone, I yeah. think that's the true. That's the yeah. the modern test of whether or not a, a film passes. Yes. You know the, the engaging. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it moves at a very solid clip. I I the, I mean a lot of praise, and Dalton's already said a lot of it that the fight scenes are great. The only negative I think I have about it, I feel like there's some tonal issues at times. Mm-hmm. Just I feel like there's a certain times where it becomes just a little too campy mm-hmm. in dialogue delivery usually, mm-hmm. and versus kind of this more serious actiony tone mm-hmm. they take at certain times. And the, the final plot reveals are pretty stupid. I mean, one they were totally easy to predict, and also they're kind of dumb. Yeah, honestly, uh, Nomad's parentage is one obvious, but then two like major plot holes about how not everybody already knew about it. Just wacky stuff. I get exactly yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, and that's probably my only major complaint with the film. Um, and I think that may just be chalked up to probably studio director type stuff that yeah. happens on these things. Well, and David S. Goyer. I mean, you know, let, let's not pretend he's the best screenwriter ever because yes. he's yeah. not. His screen, valid. Anything that he wrote by himself is usually it's a pretty rough. weak screenplay. Yeah. Um, so I think that checks out. Uh, but I love the creature design. I love the Reapers, and they look beautiful. When you, the the effect when they open up the the jaw, it and, looks great. And we did an episode long, long ago in the show's history where we talked about the best monster and creature designs, and we talked about the Reapers a lot. Dustin and I did, and I'm I'm glad you're able to see what we were talking about. Yeah. Finally, Arthur. I think that oh man, they look good. They're really yeah. fun. They're really fun creatures. Well, and the, and the characters. I mean, it's it's got that classic like A team or like yeah. Dirty dozen. Yeah. Like every character has a personality and yeah. like a weapon. You know, the task force thing. Is they have. Really they fun. all have like a really cool look. Yeah. And so I I enjoy all that. Um, and I'd agree with Dalton. I, I feel this is a really underrated series, and I think it's just ahead of its time when it came out because it came out before all the other comic movies, and so they were they were taking something that wasn't a popular idea at the time and they ran with it. Um, overall, this I think it, I don't have much negative to say. I think it's a lot of fun, and so I definitely recommend watching it. I'd give it eight friendly mutton chop beards merging into a horseshoe haircut on Ron Perlman out of 11. <laughs> Nicely played. Um, what I would say in terms of review is I'm, I would echo much of the praise that has already um, been uttered about the film. It's a lot of fun. I love Del Toro. It does all of the sort of things that he likes to do. It is very reminiscent of his Hellboy films. Mm-hmm. And I love those films as well. You see all of his preoccupations of things in jars and you know uh, these sort of... Uh, um, semi-ecclesiastical, semi-insidious um, uh, world, secret organizations, you know, at work. And, and he loves those sort of things. I love the pearly white um, skin of our main baddie vampire yeah. um, that we see also in Kronos. And, it's clearly uh, supposed to look like uh, Nosferatu. Yes, yes. And so, you know, all of that... Uh, that's going on very, very well. What I really love about this movie more than anything is everybody is basically playing a bad guy and loving it. Yeah. I mean, Wesley's, even even Blade. Yeah, Blade is a bad guy. Chris Christopherson's a bad guy. Uh, Norman Reedus is a bad guy. Uh, the bad guys are bad guys. The Blood Pack are bad guys. It, it really is just a bunch of bad guys um, fighting other <laughs> worse bad well, it's, guys. It's kind of like the good, the bad, and the ugly in that way. In that yes. The good is not very good. No. They're all bad guys to some extent or another. 
And I, I think that's just kind of interesting and fun. You know, the generally unlikable people. You don't want to have beers with any of these people. You know, no, they'll yeah. probably kill you. Yes. <laughs> you said what about they'll, my car? They'll, they'll take you to their vampire rave slash murder dungeon. Yes. <laughs> and if it's Blade, he'll take you back to his um, vampire killing dungeon. Yeah. I mean, it's just, you know, and lock you up. And whether you get cured or not, these curtains are opening at sunup. And I mean, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really sure how that cure worked, but I guess we're not supposed to read too much into yeah. that. There, there is sort of a weird thing. I, it seems like there's a, there's a, a bit of studio editing or something that's going on. It seems like there's a much deeper plot about suspecting that uh, Chris Christopherson's Whistler is a bad guy. Yeah, and 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 you get the idea that you're supposed to know that and think more yeah. of that than you really do. He kind of disappears and reappears yeah. at random. Like, where were you? And they don't really play it up well enough. Um, there, there, there's something missing there. I think maybe they're trying to sell that he was the internal guy when it's. Spoilers, Scud. Yeah, I think maybe that was they're trying to hook you that it's yeah. Whistler, but I never, never got that feeling. I just, yeah, I thought he was gonna maybe, I thought he was gonna turn into a vampire at the end. Yeah, of the uh, and the relationship is really, really shoehorned in very hard. I mean, real hard. Yeah, I, I mean, mean you believe it in the sudden, first film, but yeah, yeah, the first film like kind of has more logic behind it, and she's gone because it's a sequel to an action movie, and love interests never carry over in action movies unless True. it's Lethal Weapon. Um, but yeah, she's very kind of awkwardly shoehorned into the plot, and it's just like, okay, and now Blade's in love with her for some reason. Yeah, well, because yeah. pretty. Um, Except it. <laughs> Although I will say that the, the final moment they share together is really well shot and really cinematically quite beautiful. Sad, yeah, pretty, yes. Again, story-wise, it means nothing, but cinematically it looks great. Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, what I would give this film is, um, I don't know, eight and a half splitting chins out of a possible um, ten three quarters. How about eight and a half uh, vampire fetuses out of three quarters? Um, I I don't want any vampire fetuses at all, thank you very much. Speaking of, (laughs) Alex, what do you think about this movie? Oh wait, that's right. Alex isn't here. Uh, We didn't fire her or anything. She just, you know, she's not here today, which is really sad. Because Alex is a vampire fetus. But... (laughs) It's, it's very triggering for her to talk about vampires in a negative connotation. Uh, <laughs> seeing them murdered by 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 the score is really hard for her to, to witness as a little goth girl. It's because she all those I believe. The mystery continues, <laughs> listener. You will never know what was said on our discussion of the world's end. <laughs> I love our show. It's so much fun. Son of a bitch. Well, thank you very much for those thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Let's do what we came here to do. We're all dressed up. We might as well go to the party. And the party is analysis. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Um, I want to mention something that may just be a little on the nose with the film. Uh, But I want to look at Blade in light of race. Uh, Blade is unique as a character in several ways. Uh, He's a vampire. He's a leader of the comic book. And he's black. Um, He made (laughs) Spoilers. Wesley Snipes is black (laughs) in this movie? Yeah. I miss that. Always bet on black. And I think Blade may be one of the more, more popular black comic characters up until this point. Um, I say that mostly because I had mainstream uh, experience with him just from the Spider-Man cartoon that Dalton mentioned earlier. And so yep. I didn't have access to comic shops or I didn't read a lot of comic books, but I knew who Blade was. I mean, yeah, in the mid, stands out. In the mid-90s, unless you were in your 20s uh, and had been following comic books for a long time, or had a really cool pairing, you didn't go to comic shops. Because comic shops to this day are geared to ward off outsiders. 
they are geared to make people who don't know about comic books uncomfortable when they go inside. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was my first exposure to comic book characters was those animated series uh, from the early mid '90s: Batman, the animated series, X Men, Spider Man, and those X Men and Spider Man shows. You know, adapting whole uh, plot lines from a comic book. So that was my first exposure to Blade as well. Was yeah. that television series. And so to me, I, I think that makes him somewhat more recognizable than say Black Panther, who I didn't really hear of until I was older. Yeah. And had more familiarity with T'Challa the universe. in the house. Uh, and the only other, other character I could think of who had that same level of popularity was probably Storm. Uh, but she's not really the lead in the series. She's just yeah. that extra <clears throat> character there. Um, the Blade is half human, half vampire. His mother being human, his father a vamp, creates an interesting scenario for Blade. He doesn't want to become a monster. Other way around, isn't it? No. No, you're right, you're right. No, his mother yeah, was yeah. already pregnant and got that's right. bit by a vampire. You're right, you're right. She, but she becomes one in the first movie, that's right. Mm-hmm. I, I recall now. Convoluted mythology. <clears throat> you guys notice that every single Blade movie involves him getting bled to death at the very end? I think <laughs> the third one does it too. I know the first two for a fact do it. They're powering the blood. They're just trying to steal his blood. He doesn't want to become a monster like other vampires, and so he turns to Whistler to learn how to be more human and combat the vampirism in his blood. Uh, Whistler, in many Blades, does become a father figure to Blade, as Scud points out in Blade 2. So now we have a half-man, half-vampire, born of a black mother and raised by a white father. And for all intents and purposes, I'm going to throw out a problematic term. Uh, it shows up as somewhat necessary here. Uh, Blade could be considered as mulatto. Mm-hmm. Now, our dear listeners may remember that Dalton was not a fan of that terminology when it came up during our Harry Potter show. I'm not. I don't like the word either. Is we're not we're not supposed to say that anymore. The quadroon times they are changing is also not okay. No, also <laughs> not say? okay. Quadroon, which is a thing they used to say. People were weird. It was a bad time. People are still weird. They, they used are. to be even weirder. But you're right. No, he he is um, biracial in a lot of ways. Although Wesley Snipes is hundred percent was the darkest leading man in Hollywood in the yeah. early '90s and in, yeah. well into the early 2000s. Um, Blade, in a lot of ways, I get exactly where you're coming from in, in terms of his vampirism. There is something of an allegory for you know mixed racial descent going on here. Uh, now, in the film, Blade is neither liked nor accepted because of his half-blood standing. He can't truly live as human because he is too different from the norm, uh, nor can he live with the vampires. Blade is ashamed of his vampire lineage. Uh, he doesn't want to accept or be part of it. He wants no association there. Uh, much like some people of mixed uh, lineage or race, uh, they may be outed because of it. They have this separation. They're either pushed out, usually, if they don't have maybe two uh, white parents or two black parents or two straight parents. And we'd hope society has come further than that, but... 2015 and some places still aren't past that and so we see this a lot with Blade because Blade's biggest fear early on the movie is that Whistler is going to become a vampire Mm -hmm. and so there's this this fear he has there and this issue that he doesn't want Whistler to be one of them he wants Whistler to remain purely whole whole meat white 100% American Mm -hmm. uh, white white man Um, well I think the vampires are clearly white people all of the vampires well they're because they're the most evil (laughs) <laughs> in this film this becomes a very interesting situation it first arises notably for me when Reinhardt asks Blade if he can blush uh, now this may be a double entendre as it could be a notation of Blade having human blood in him uh, asking then if he could just blush in that way however I think it comes across as being a knock on Blade's skin color and this is only emphasized because 90%, 99% of the cast is white mm-hmm. I believe there are maybe a couple of people of Asian descent and well, they're mostly I was actually gonna, throwaway characters I was going to point out they, they're mostly throwaway characters but the blood pack is Fairly, you know, compared to most movies, uh, racially diverse. Uh, Snowman uh, is played by Donnie Yen, who is a very famous uh, Chinese mm-hmm. a- uh, action actor who actually was a martial arts choreographer on the film as well. Uh, Nissa is ethnically yeah. ambiguous. Her mm-hmm. partner is black. Assad. 
uh, no, Saad, thank you, is mm-hmm. black. Um, and then you got the weird Eastern Europeans who don't ever talk. Yeah. Um, and then the Irish guy. So the ethnically and racially, fairly diverse uh, mix of people considering, um, you know, that this is pre-Fast and the Furious days. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is interesting because our Half-Blood Blade sits at the front of what is essentially a race war between the vampires and reapers. Uh-huh. And in this race <laughs> war, everyone is white, or at least skin color white, mm-hmm. different ethnicities, but mostly... Yeah, with, with the exception of three, three yeah, of the main characters. Painful. Um but the modern younger white people are more powerful than the old European white people, looking at the Reapers who seem more modern and more uh, maybe urban or they're from yeah. the streets. Less, characters. less aristoc- aristocratic. There yeah. we go. They're gritty. Um, they kind of come across as more uh, youthful and younger uh, compared to the uh, dusty, airy European... Leadership of the Vampire Nation. Yeah. yeah, they're very kind of old, old bones about them. Even the younger ones still carry that oldness. I mean, Reinhardt's implied to be a, a Nazi, mm-hmm. or a former Nazi, who was turned into a vampire. And I think it's interesting, because by the end of the film, Blade is left standing. He's still not accepted, and he's still in the midst of this gigantic race war, and yet he has found no peace with who or what he is. And I think Blade 2 is very interesting in Del Toro's oeuvre and not having seen Mimic. I can't really comment on that one. Uh, but Blade 2 sees Del Toro addressing issues of race and how everyone gets along where everyone should stand in that regard. Uh, which is a long distance from his normal uh, modus operandi of the young prince or princess uh, who have entered some sort of fairy tale land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a still very interesting film and certainly a fun film in his filmography. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in terms of analysis? Well, I just want to put a button in something Arthur <clears throat> said that I just totally thought of at the end of that, even talking about Blade's struggles with his identity. I think we get a little bit of that in Hellboy, uh, particularly in Hellboy 2, uh, also starring Ron Perlman, mm-hmm. um, in that, you know, Hellboy sees this larger world that he's a part of. Yeah. In the first one, he's mostly mingling with humans, and the second one, he gets to, to see this second world that he is much more accepted in, and nobody looks at him funny. So I think there are some interesting theme, interesting ongoing themes of identity yeah. um, and parentage going on, especially yeah. in the Hellboy films, yeah. uh, more so than Pan's Labyrinth and Pacific Rim and uh, Devil's Backbone. Um, I, but I think you make a really good point, Arthur. Absolutely. Well, when I started uh, writing my analysis, I was thinking about something along the lines of you know, uh, vampirism as a metaphor for sexually transmitted uh, infection. Yeah. Uh, but the more I, I, I was writing about the film... Um, and thinking about the film, I was just kept going back to how much I was going to talk about the fight scenes in my review. So I wanted to go ahead and, and do a brief analysis of the fight scenes in this film, because I talk a lot about on the show about how the best fight scenes move the story forward, how they don't just serve uh, to be something, uh, you know, a spectacle to be awed at and, and marveled at. They actually serve, you know, when they're at their best, they serve to uh, advance character plots uh, and serve the story as a whole. So I'm just going to kind of go through all the major fights that Blade engages in in this film uh, and kind of talk about how they serve the lar- larger narrative and his larger character beats. Um, the best exposition in this film, far better than the kind of clunky voiceover we get um, explaining what the hell is going on in this movie if you didn't see the first one, um, better than that is the first uh, encounter we have of Blade where he you know, kills the hell out of all these vampires uh, and, you know, Garotes that guy off a motorcycle, and it's very cool. So it does a far better job of establishing who Blade is as a character and what's important to him than any of that voiceover. Clearly that car is very important. Exactly. <laughs> that car is important. To him. It teaches us everything we need to know about Blade. 
He is focused. He is mission-driven. He is the baddest of the bad. Uh, and all he cares about, really, is getting the job done and keeping his equipment in pristine condition. Uh, and I think that's very interesting. It tells us a lot about that character. Moving on into the fight with the Blood Pack when they first show up, what that shows us is that, oh, these aren't regular vampires. These people are equals with Blade. Uh, and that kind of allows us to bring some more logic to his willingness to work with them. I think that's really one of the, the best things about that fight is it serves to rationalize why Blade would work with people, you know, or with vampires, you know, work with his sworn enemies, is because he sees their skill. Uh, and then once he learns about the threat of the Reapers, he realizes, I might need some help with this. And that fight that he has with Nyssa and Asad uh, kind of brings some rationality to why he would align with them, because he sees their skill. So moving on to the fight with uh, Jarek. Uh, Jared? Jared or Jarek? Jared Nomad, whatever. Nomad. Nomad. Yeah. Uh, which, Nomad, Nomad, whatever. It clearly is supposed to be Nomad. Um, the bastardization of it. I mean, it's, it's lazy script writing. Um, so when he fights Nomad, I think what that is supposed to show us is, oh, this is the only thing that Blade can't beat easily. Uh, and it's, it's meant to show us, as that whole scene is, not just Blade's fight in particular, that whole sequence is, is to show us how big of a threat these, these Reavers are, uh, Reapers are. Uh, and it is meant to illustrate, you know, the real struggle that's coming, um, that they are something that cannot be beaten easily, and that they are going to take every ounce that Blade has to defeat them. So we move on into the double cross. Uh, Blade is totally betrayed, um, beaten, bloodied, uh, very nearly dies, uh, and then Whistler uh, gets him to get into the blood pool uh, to, you know, regain his strength. Um, and I think that scene allows us to see, you know, Blade at his most untapped potential. You know, once he's supercharged with actual blood as opposed to his serum, he whoops six different flavors of ass in that scene. I mean, just completely, single-handedly goes through about two dozen people and, and just absolutely annihilates them, uh, and then very easily defeats Reinhardt uh, while throwing back Can You Blush in his face. Yeah. And I think that is meant to show us, okay, Blade's back, um... And through the supercharging powers of actual blood, uh, he's going to, he, he's at 100% form. Don't worry, he's not injured anymore. He's going into this final fight at his most badassery. Um, and then the final fight with Jared, is, uh, with Nomak, is, again, illustrates really everything that Blade is putting on the line. Um, he gets his ass kicked big time in this fight. Uh, and when you juxtapose that with a fight that took place immediately prior to, it's meant to show you that, okay, even at his most supercharged, this is the hardest fight Blade has is, is had in this movie. It's meant to show you, you know, this, this hero struggle, this sacrifice, this, this putting his body on the line to defend human beings who are afraid of him. Uh, and I, I think it's kind of a beautiful moment of, of, of you know, heroic uh, triumph and, and sacrifice. And again, it's an awesome fight scene. Uh, and again, I, I mentioned those CGI moments uh, previously. In that fight... The, the brief you know usage of CGI models as opposed to actors or stunt performers uh, gives us a sense of just how much raw you know supernatural strength and power is going on in this fight. Um, so again, I think that's something that Blade Two does very well, and I say it all the time. But that is why I think it does it so well. Um, you know, just going through those fight scenes as you watch them, thinking of <clears throat> as you watch those fight scenes. You know, consider how they are moving the story forward. And that's something I want to encourage all of our listeners to do, especially 
our listeners who enjoy, you know, uh, martial arts films uh, and, and fight choreography, don't just think about how the choreography looks. Think about how it moves the story forward. Think about what it tells us about the characters as they're engaged in conflict. Uh, because I've heard it said before, and I think it's very true, that martial arts movies are uh, the dude equivalent of musicals, to put it in gendered terms, um, which I don't normally like to do. But I think it's very accurate. Um, you know, the story has built up so much tension that the only way to release it is through a performance. In musicals, it's a song and dance. In martial arts films, it's a highly choreographed fight scene, which is essentially a dance. Uh, you know, a choreographed fight is more or less a choreographed dance. Um, so I, I just want to con- um, encourage people to consider that as they watch these types of films um, and are considering their quality. Think about what the fights serve. Do they serve as spectacle or do they serve as a real moment in the story? And I think it's a good me- um, measuring tape for the quality of musicals as well. Are we just here for the production values and, and you know the fun and songs and the, and the cool dance numbers? Or do those musical pieces or fight scenes, whatever the case may be, do they serve to tell you something more about the characters and move the story along in an effective manner? Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What I want to talk about is um, the durability of vampires and vampire mythology in terms of analysis. Uh, Jacques Derrida once talked about how when you look at a work of art at a specific point in time, you will not ever be gazing at that same um, artwork from the same point ever again. And so as your position changes, so also the interpretation of the work of art changes as well. And I want to talk a little bit about some of the historical um, precedents of Blade, obviously beginning with Dracula, which I think is a, uh, a wonderfully durable story that has uh, changed and shifted meanings over time. We've alluded to some of this already. Uh, when the story was being originally written in the late 1890s by Bram Stoker, uh, it was mostly about uh, immigration of these Eastern Europeans into Western parts of Europe, specifically into England, and how they were a threat and how they were dangerous and not thought very well of. And that seems to be most of the preoccupation that uh, Mr. Stoker had. It was interesting giving a lecture about this particular concept in class not very long ago as a Serbian student giggled the whole time um, about these crazy Eastern Europeans coming into the West, and he thought it was very, very he's, funny. He's funny because I am from Serbia. <laughs> yeah, and so Milan, there's your shout-out, brother. Um, I'm sorry, Milan. <laughs> that's, I don't think that's what Serbian people sound like. <laughs> it's not a far cry. And... <laughs> And so that begins that, but also it begins to um, find its way into that sort of Victorian nexus of uh, prudery and uh, sexual repression. And so the vampire immediately begins to take on some of these overtones of the uh, Svengali, mm-hmm. um, Don Juan. Very swarthy. Uh, very, yeah, very swarthy and also out to get our women. And uh, so that begins very, very quickly uh, to become part and parcel of the story. As Freud comes along, uh, Freudian psychoanalysis begins to kind of merge uh, with those concepts as well, and we begin to, uh, again, this sort of erotic uncanny um, that is uh, the connection between the the, uh, the sex drive and the death drive. And so we begin to see that vampires are going to kill you, and that's part of why they're real hot. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that all, again, begins as we get further into the mid-20th century. Um, as we move a little further forward, and we get into the 1980s, the AIDS epidemic begins to reinterpret the way that we look upon, and as was already mentioned on the show, um, sexually transmitted diseases mm-hmm. um, and vampirism uh, become very, very closely related. And yeah. of course, 
Stoker knew of syphilis, and uh, I mean, I don't know if he knew personally or not, but you know, right. uh, it, it was a, a thing. It was a rampant epidemic at the time. Yeah, it's a thing. And uh, but as the AIDS crisis begins, then there are again these classes of people, and they're dangerous, and they're a threat. And we they, start to think much differently of bloodborne pathogens, mm-hmm. and which vampirism, if you remove the mysticism as the Blade films do. That's all it is, is a bloodborne pathogen. Right. And they are, upon, and they are the, again, sort of these predators who prey upon victims who infect them with their disease. Well, I think, interestingly, as, as you're talking about how, you know, current events shape our understanding of fictional characters, uh, I, I think it's very interesting that the look of the uh, Reapers is very much... Um, you know, they look like emaciated drug addicts, people dying of AIDS. Uh, Nomad walks <laughs> around in a hoodie, mm-hmm, uh, yeah. you know, looking very much like a homeless person. Quite somebody, somebody you would not be surprised to find out is suffering from a terminal illness um, or severe drug addiction. Because, you know, he, when he's not feeding, he is, looks very weak uh, yeah. and out of sorts. And I think that's a very interesting um, parallel in Blade to what you're talking about right now. And as we back up to the introduction of Blade, which is also um, directly tied to the Dracula mythos, uh, Marvel released the Tomb of Dracula uh, comic book series in the 70s. Issue number 10 introduces uh, the Blade character, who is very much a reaction to black power movements uh, there in the 70s. He's very, I mean, his blackness is uh, one of his key traits. Much like Luke Cage at the time. Yes. and um, He's got an afro. And, and the writing is... Bad. Which well, which is the haircut of the black power <laughs> yeah. movement in the 1970s. True, yeah. true, but it goes natural. Yeah. And I mean that that is the point. Uh, and so he talks jive, and uh, you know the we, original blade. Yeah, you know we we were joking about what you talking about Dracula, and uh, mm-hmm. there's a there's a little bit of that that's going on uh, throughout those sort of things. But again, uh, we begin to uh, use the vampire mythology to talk about uh, liberation movements. We begin to talk about power movements. We begin to talk about specific ethnicities and race uh, once again. Then, um, as we look at Blade Two specifically, uh, we begin to encounter post-9-11 uh, sort of mythology. So we now have our SEAL Team 6 that's out to take out the major terror threats, although the terror threat, to an extent, is Blade himself. Though Blade himself is also fighting the secret war that nobody knows about and uh, continues on in those projects to to rid the world of evil um, using uh, means and methodologies that we would find uh, less than sanitary for dinner table conversation. And uh, so you see some of those similar sorts of war on terror types of endorsements that are taking place uh, throughout the series. And, and what, what's wonderful about vampires and vampire mythology, again, is their durability and is also their chameleon-like ability to be adapted to whatever's going on at the time. And so as you consider you know, the nexus of all vampire mythology as something of a spire with Stoker's Dracula in the middle. And as that circle widens and widens and widens, you find yourself on different places on the circle looking back down towards the middle of the Dracula and broader vampire mythology. As you do so, you see those other steps on the way, but you cannot see them except for from the viewpoint from which you stand now. Absolutely. And so I think this is one of those places where theory becomes very helpful and uh, makes it very interesting. Mm-hmm. when we begin to consider uh, vampires and vampire mythology um, as, again, just a very, very durable set of texts um, mm-hmm. that are um, excellent vessels to carry whatever the anxieties of a time uh, may be. And uh, it, interestingly, as we look forward from Blade into Guillermo del Toro's The Strain, we see that there's been some sort of a uh, unholy transfusion of zombie genre mm-hmm. uh, that begins to take place. You see quite a bit of this in Blade as well, and The Strain mm-hmm. even more so. Well, and I think, you know, speaking... Uh, again, to to the larger social concerns of the time, and more so in the first Blade, 
um, you know, his love interest is a hematologist, as it is all about the bloodborne pathogen and, mm-hmm. and the science of it. Um, and, you know, removing the mysticism. I mean, the first blade speaks to the history, you know, the 150 year or so history of vampire mythos. And, you know, he's like, oh, it's all bullshit. Mm-hmm. Which is, I'm pretty sure, a direct quote, actually. Yeah, I think maybe uh, it is. It's just, you know, um, I, also, Silver, I don't can't think of another single vampire mythos where Silver is their weakness, but that's not important. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. Um, but what ends up happening with these sort of zombified vampires mm-hmm. and other versions of their ilk, of course, going all the way back to Dawn of the Dead, we see this sort of consumerism mm-hmm. um, bit of a commentary. And what happens in the strain specifically is uh, something of an Occupy Wall Street uh, sort of understanding that there is this major economically powerful conglomerate at work in the world, and uh, they are doing everything they can to enslave, ensnare, and zombify, vampirize all of humanity. And those who resist are going to only be cattle. And uh, again, uh, those sorts of uh, ideological anxieties and concerns in society uh, begin to be really, really powerful and uh, meaningful in uh, vampire uh, mythology as it moves forward, as, again, those uh, that spiral spins out further and further uh, from its center. And I'm just excited to see what happens next in terms of vampire stories, and that's why I love them oh so very much. How badass is the vampire disintegration in these movies? It's pretty cool. I can't think of another vampire story in which the death of the vampires looks so awesome. Um, and I don't know if Buffy started that whole disintegration with the skeleton remaining thing. Um, I, it's the first thing I can think of as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where they turn to dust with a skeleton in the middle. And Blade does it so much better, where it's like they catch on fire mm-hmm. uh, and then disintegrate into a skeleton. Well, and I think actually that's a commentary Del Toro is making about the medium he's using right now in terms of blowing apart society, because the well, silver start, combination start... that's used is silver nitrate, yes. specifically, which is uh, the the emulsion used in old celluloid, oh, and well, it, it's well, I mean, it's not all that you know tactically helpful. But well, that's a carryover from the from Blade One. Yes, all of that, all that mythos, and all of that, you know. The visual of the disintegrating vampire, but that's very mm. interesting. I'd be curious to know if the filmmakers behind the first Blade film were thinking about that. The explosive powers of cinema, yeah, you know, in terms of, of cultural, um, you know, rebellion and revolution. So there is something really valuable and interesting going on there with it all. Thank you very much, dear co-host, for some excellent analysis. Let's move on to the time where we render a verdict: shelf or trash, else or instead. I ask you first, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? Man, it's tough. I, I think it is a lot of fun, and I think people should watch it. I don't know that I can warrant telling you to run out and buy it and put it on your shelf. Uh, maybe put it on a friend's shelf. Um, on, on a couple of conditions. If you like vampires, I have a wheelhouse. Vampires are in that wheelhouse. If that's your wheelhouse, then definitely pick this up. If you like action and stuff. If you like comic movies, um, I think Blade's got a lot going for it. However, it may not be for everybody, but definitely I think you should try to watch it. Either watch it with some friends or stream it or something. Check it out. Uh, to go with it... Uh, oh, also, if you're a completionist you want to see all of Del Toro's work, you have to watch this. Uh, also, Mimics on Netflix. I want to watch that at some point so I can... It's not as of, bad as Del Toro even says. I think that's the only one I haven't seen. Anyway. I'd say this would pair well with another bit of good trash called Daybreakers uh, starring Ethan Hawke and Sam yeah. Neill. Yeah, I think which, this would kind of go an awesome vampire movie, which yeah. ends in a literal bloodbath. Yeah, uh, which could be fun down the road. Uh, also, Thirty Days of Night. When I saw the Reavers, I, or Reapers, I thought of 
the, the vamps in 30 Days of Night. Which are which very are, much like, uh, they're, they're great white sharks. Yeah. Which is uh, actually a line in uh, Blade Trinity. Uh, Ryan Reynolds says they're like great white sharks and never had to evolve. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, they're, they are predatory. And I think that 20 days of, 20, 30 days of night, uh, film, um, really works wonderfully as a reaction to the Twilight vampires that yeah. were so popular. That and Daybreakers both yeah. are, I think, very reactionary because they yeah. are so violent. Yeah. Uh, so those are a couple solid picks. Also, for more Del Toro vampire fun, you'll watch Kronos, uh, which also features a device that gets implanted into someone's skin that they can't remove, as well as Ron Perlman. Yeah, that Scarab is great. Uh, also, for more Snipes, check out Demolition Man, uh, which would be a fun recommend for this show as well down the road. Yes! Um... And due to similar themes of race and fitting in, go watch X-Men and X-Men 2 and check out Harry Potter. And finally, my last recommendation, uh, one of the more enjoyable vampire films of the last few years, you go watch uh, While We Do in the Shadows. Go try to find it if you can because it is a lot of fun. It really just plays with that vampire mythos. And it is a blast to watch. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's to tell you? Shell for trash, else or instead? You know, I frequently find myself wishing Blade 2 was on my shelf. Um, I've seen this movie dozens of times at this point. Um, I, you know, it's just, when it was on Netflix uh, not too long ago, I would watch it every couple of months because it's just a, I, I like it that much. I think it's that much fun. And again, um, it, easily the best in the series. So, I, I, as Arthur said, I mean, it's not a perfect film. With some caveats, I think you should shelf it if it, you find that it's in your wheelhouse. Because I think it's one of... I mean, horror action movies are few and far between, and I think they're a very interesting combination, and this is probably one of the best of those. Um, so, you know, if it's in your wheelhouse, definitely pick it up, because I find myself wishing I owned it all the time. Um, as Arthur said, I, I think Blade uh, 2 is, is most interesting uh, outside of itself when compared to the rest of Guillermo del Toro's work, specifically the Hellboy movies and Kronos. Uh, everything, I'm just going to echo everything that Arthur said about Kronos. It is a very interesting film. One that I, I didn't see until after I'd seen a lot more of Del Toro's yeah. work. But I was really glad. Yeah. Uh, I think the only... F- I've never seen Mimic as well. Um, I, I had seen Pan's Labyrinth, though. Um, shortly before watching Kronos, I want to say. And it's just really interesting because it does come so early in his career. Um, and it, again, I, I like it a lot uh, for all the art reasons Arthur mentioned. Uh, and we touched a little bit on some of the themes in Blade 2 that are present in Hellboy 2. Uh, easily better than the first Hellboy film. Although we have, uh, we discussed the first Hellboy film on this podcast uh, quite a while back. Um, pretty solid episode as I recall. I could be wrong though. Go listen and find out for me. Um, but we actually discussed maybe doing Hellboy 2 as part of the sequels marathon because we're all such big fans of it. Um, but you know, if we're going to do one Del Toro sequel and it's my pick, we're doing Blade 2. Um, last but not least, if you want some more sweet, sweet vampire hunting action, you should check out the delightfully schlocky John Carpenter's Vampires, uh, starring James Woods, who is so badass, and one of the Baldwins, I can't remember which. Take, take your pick. Billy? I want to say Billy Baldwin. Um, that's a test tube experiment gone terribly wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Billy Baldwin? It's, it's not the most... All the Baldwins. (laughs) You shut your fucking mouth. Baldwin's close. It's multiplicity. Hey, you put that down. Coffee is for closers. Alec Baldwin could do no wrong in my eyes, and his brothers are okay. Uh, it might be Daniel. Who knows? It's one of the lesser Baldwins, but it's him and it's it's him and James Woods. The copy of the copy of the, the copy. copy. Exactly. She touched my peppy, Alec. <laughs> 
if you haven't seen John Carpenter's <laughs> Vampires, I believe it is streaming um, on Amazon Prime, maybe. Um, it's a blast. Uh, it used to be in heavy rotation uh, on Saturday afternoons on the Sci-Fi Channel. I remember I've seen the movie probably four or five times uh, in in different chunks. It's so schlocky and gory and just everything wacky about later John Carpenter is in that film. Um, and again, it's totally awesome. I have not seen the sequel uh, starring John Bon Jovi, so I cannot recommend that. But I can recommend Vampires starring James Woods. I wonder if he's living James on a prayer. Oh. I believe he is in that film. So those are my recommendations for Shelf or Trash, elsewhere instead. Dustin Sells, what do you think, bud? Um, I'm definitely going to say Shelf. I'm a Del Toro completist. I've seen it all. I'm very excited about Crimson Peak coming out with him. Yes. And uh, just all the things. Jessica Chastain and Tom Hiddleston, sign me up. Yeah, I know, yeah. right? And Del Toro, yes, please. I'll take two. Thank you. And uh, so I definitely would want to say Shelf for that. My Elsa's, uh, in terms of vampire action, look at an animated film, Batman versus Dracula. Um, and it's really fun. I mean, it really, really is. And it's all up in the wheelhouse. And it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's good time to be had uh, by all there. In terms of a vampire story sort of turned up on its head and done differently, and it's not a vampire, even though it totally is, um, take a look at Hellraiser, uh, in which Frank has to be invited in, and uh, he has to suck blood to get life, and um, those sort of things uh, going on. Throughout not, the film, not a film I'm wild about. Uh, you need to rewatch it. You need to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Tell me what to do, old man. Uh, and uh, finally, um, Bela Lugosi. You could do no worse than checking out the original 1931 Todd Browning Dracula and uh, Good Times. I think we've talked about this before. How do you feel about uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula? Oh, I like it. Yeah, it, it's a little oversexed, um, but I like it quite a bit. And uh, hello, I am Jonathan Harker. Yeah, whoa, well, his, his, his it is the very man himself. He's he's very strangely British with his uh, Keanu ease. It's it's British and yet still Keanu. It's very weird. Yeah, <laughs> but Winona Ryder, and um, you don't really... Gary damn Oldman. Yeah, um, and Winona was going to be um, Sofia Coppola's role in Godfather Part Three and was un- unable to do so, and that was sort of amending offenses and relationships between um, her and Coppola. Interesting. And so uh, there's something going on there as well, and <laughs> it's just it's it's rad. Um, I like it. And finally, I would recommend the Dracula um, 2000 series, um, which I know you're a big fan of. I, I really like the straight to video, uh, but uh, after the sequels are uh, yet. Fun. Rudger Hauer is in the third one, and yes, please. Who is it that does all the kung fu in the second one? Um, that guy that does the kung fu. <laughs> has I, his name. He has a name. Build. Um, it the could guy be that does all the kung fu. The guy that does the kung fu. It's somebody that's been in some other not so great movies. Correct. You know, the Blade series harkens back to a time um, where if you were photogenic and could, you know, hit your mark and knew some martial arts, you could be the star of an action franchise. <laughs> I mean, we had we had Jean-Claude Van Damme. Who's photogenic for days. Oh, man, pretty guy. Steven Seagal, not that photogenic, but apparently he knows how to hit his mark and, you know, can throw people all over a room. Wesley Snipes. I mean, it's so weird if you look back at the 90s. The 80s were all about the big, big beefy, muscular um, action heroes were and we we transitioned into the 1990s it's interesting to to see how you know the action heroes change they're much more live but much more skilled uh, which I think is very interesting and, and again blade is kind of the end of that I mean it's the last call to to that hey 
you know martial arts and also want to be an actor, please headline this movie. It'll be cheap. We'll, we'll have to hire less stunt performers. Yeah. Uh, and I think Wesley Snipes was the last actor to get any mileage out of that. In lieu of Dalton's comments, I would also recommend Bloodsport because Kumite or Go Home. Yeah, dude, right? <laughs> Man. So, so yeah, Frank W. Dukes, um, good times had by all. And so check it out. And Fun fact, I don't know if you guys saw this, um, Wesley Snipes was one of the um, uh, stunt um, supervisors on this film. Um, Donnie again did all the fight choreography and then they had a, a specific like stunt supervisor uh, but then like the stunt team was basically the, the main stunt guy Donnie Yen and, and Wesley Snipes which I think is really cool that's cool that I mean you know dude actually knows what he's doing yeah. which means you know you get to do more interesting stuff with the camera because you don't need to worry about hide your stunt man yeah. yeah well that was fun of a bunch of guys talking about a movie um, we would like to talk about movies with all of you and this is how you can do it via those magical means that we all know as social media I think we need a segue oh wait I just made one so Mr. Arthur Gordon what say you sir about social media nothing like a good segue what the hell is a segue <laughs> segue I drive one around at the mall <laughs> with your <laughs> Paul Blart mustache <laughs> <laughs> ladies and gentlemen you can find the Good Trash Genrecast on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash good trash genrecast one word on Facebook, Randall Bay said that Daredevil the movie was terribly trashy. <laughs> yes, it was, Randall. Yes, it was. Caleb Masters said he expects a certain marathon later this year after our May the 4th post about Star Wars. Tina McNeil said that Tombstone, Jaws, and Bull Durham would be her movies on repeat from uh, our Spring Breakers game many moons ago. Good pick, Antina. Over on Google+, Plus, you can also search us out on Google+, Plus uh, if you'd like. Um, we have some new followers over there, and then uh, someone recommended that we do more 80s horror movies at some point. Well, we do try to limit... Yes, please! Shut up, old man. <laughs> Go back to your home. <laughs> we try to limit our, our horror selections to our Shocktober Marathon because Did you it is know such an endeavor each year. David S. Goyer wrote Demonic Toys for Full Moon. No kidding. Yes. The original Demonic Toys. They're original, yes sir. I really want to see Demonic Toys versus Puppet Master. I want to, well, I want to see them all for the show. I want to do like an Elvira week. They're, they're, <laughs> it, is a, it is a fascinating franchise. It really is. Puppet Master? No, Demonic Toys. Puppet Master 2, yes, also. Correct. You guys ever see the Wishmaster movies? Uh, no, oh, yes. Oh, they're fucking cool. Can we play? Yes, 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 and yes. This Listen- year, 80s comes to Shocktober. Listeners, you've already got us planning. Yeah, it's going to be a good time. Uh, so that's what we got for those two sources. You can also email us at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, we would love to get that long-form response from you telling us why we suck or why you enjoy our, our ramblings. Uh, so hit us up. Talk to us sometime. It'll be fun. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Donald Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which conversations may be held? Dustin, if there's anything left of you in there, listen up. In the morning, I'm going to start tweeting, whether you started following me or not. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Any feedback coming in from that Twitter? We do. Um, in his role as our, our, our news person, I guess... Um, Brigham Cole sent us the first, uh... That's right, Brigham Cole is Jimmy Olsen. Moving on. <laughs> he, he sent us the, uh, the first official picture of the Suicide Squad, sans Jared Leto's, uh, previously revealed Joker. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the, the Deadshot costume looks cool. 
Margot Robbie looks great as Harley Quinn. Uh, Killer Croc looks leaves a little bit to be desired. Um, but it's, you know, overall, I was like, well, that's cool. I, I really don't have much of an opinion about the Suicide Squad movie at this point. Jared Leto appears to be... Um, a juggalo? Guy, guy Pierce from uh, Memento, and he's have tattoos remind him that he is the Joker. A juggalo. <laughs> uh, apparently <laughs> those... Oh, no. <laughs> Kill Batman. You're crazy. Uh, apparently those... those... <laughs> Those tattoos will not actually be in the movie, uh, but if they're not, I'm like, then why the fuck did you bother what was the point? photoshopping them onto him? Because my they, favorite one is just annoyed the, uh, people. The Game Boy ad that they did with him. It was like one of the old '90s Game Boy ads. That's funny. And yeah, I'll pick. I'll find it for you. When That's they did the Game Boy Color. Oh, um, like yeah, watch you, your color. Uh, Kirsten Thurgolson tweeted in and said, "Super Mario Brothers movie and The Lost World. Great double feature or greatest double feature? Greatest, <laughs> greatest, <laughs> absolutely." <laughs> Uh, I, I asked, and the internet, specifically Bergen Cole, answered. Uh, the fight choreography for World's End uh, was done by Brad Allen, who also did choreography for Pacific Rim, very surprising, and Scott Pilgrim, not so surprising. Uh, so thank you for that, Bergen. I did ask on that show, I said, hey, who did damn fight choreography this movie? And the internet answered, because you can always count on them. Uh, Brad, <laughs> Brad Leperson wrote in and wanted to know how much uh, Dustin had paid me not to mention the fact that he looks just like Bruce Campbell, um, which just uh, encouraged a back and forth between Dustin and Brad that really had me laughing quite hard. Uh, Brad also suggested um, that speaking of our game for that week, uh, which for the Army of Darkness show, which was uh, movies you'd like to see further expanded upon in a television <laughs> setting, uh, he said he'd love to see a Briscoe County Junior reboot uh, oh, television series. I'm all over that. Yeah. Um, I'm starring in it. And finally, he also suggested a Big Trouble in Little China series. Um, yes! Hashtag epic. Hashtag Jack Burton says. Hashtag late to the game. <laughs> you were Leperson. You very much were late to the game. Keep up. We expect better from you. Uh, Bo Hannon also shared, our wonderful co-host is not here with us, shared that there is going to be a free screening um, of an American werewolf in London at the Paramount uh, downtown Oklahoma City. Uh, brought to you by the Oklahoma Film Club and Deus Ex Media, which is another uh, local podcast. Um, so if you like American Werewolf in London, in London which is a, just a fabulous movie, they're going to be screening that there Wednesday, May the 13th. Doors open at 6.30. Uh, you can go check that out at the Paramount Theater in downtown Oklahoma City. Um, I have retweeted that ad if you'd on like more On Oklahoma info. City's historic film run. That's right. So if you want more information, uh, the exact address and all that good stuff, I have tweeted um, that um, ad, if you will. So, um, yeah, that's what we've got going on this week in terms of facey uh, face, not facey face, Twitty Tweet. Um, <laughs> Twitty Tweets. Um, I'm tired. Dear listener, I just want to say thank you. This week's feedback made me very, very happy. You guys are awesome, and keep that feedback coming. Of course, you can also give us ratings. Uh, and comments on iTunes, Stitch Internet Radio, and at Podbean. I, I cannot emphasize how helpful uh, those iTunes ratings are. Even if you don't say a word and you just give us the stars, um, those things um, help get this message, the good news, the gospel of uh, good trash out there to the world. And so we would love, love for you to do that for us all. But enough of this, guys. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game! <laughs> this week's game, our favorite cinematic mentors. 
That's right, favorite movie mentors brought to you by Blade 2. Blade 2. When you need to open a can of whoop ass, look no further than Chris Christopherson. So, we are, because Whistler is such a great uh, mentor character in Blade 2, we are going to select our favorites uh, in terms of mentors. I begin with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, you can, we already know you're going to say me, so just keep going for me. <laughs> just, just because yeah. you're old. Skip over that bit. <laughs> Listener, you are hearing an assault as it happens. It's, it's too late to It's too late to call the police. <laughs> it's going to this be is pre-recorded. <laughs> it's not live. Uh, well, my first pick is the greatest mentor of all time for anything ever, and that is, of course, Master Splinter uh, of the Ninja Turtles. Nice. Uh, oh yeah, because he's so tiny and cute, yet so dangerous and, and voiced so well by Mako in the animated film. Oh, I love it so much. It's very good. Yeah, Master Splinter is the top of my list because he's. Childhood, that whole thing. Uh, I would say one of my more interesting uh, mentors I've seen is uh, Harry uh, from Dexter, the Dexter series. Uh, oh yeah, Dexter's nice. father, Harry, uh, who's actually mostly shows up as a ghost or just a his conscience or what he has of a conscience uh, is him thinking out loud. I was going to say played by Lance Henriksen. That's not Lance Henriksen. <laughs> no. That is that one guy from the Warriors who I love and whose name I can never remember. That's fair. So that one guy that we can never remember. He's uh, I, I just think he's a really interesting character. It's a dynamic that's really interesting there. And it's just a lot of fun uh, for a show that's really solid for about four seasons. Um, next, just because of my childhood and because Batman, I'd say Alfred Pennyworth, uh, who's just nice, a, just tough. He's he's smart. He's just a, a great father figure for Bruce. I think like, he's just a, a solid hand. A character around. who, like everybody in the Batman mythos, has a lot of versatility <laughs> in how he's deployed, which I yeah. think is really interesting. And, and so I, I think he's a great a great mentor. And lastly. Um, though he has just a short appearance in the series, I'd say Sirius Black uh, from Harry Potter will be my last entry into this list. Uh, Sirius Black, I think, was a great character and one that I, I really loved from the books and uh, and in the movies of Gary Oldman portraying him, and he did not get enough time in the films. Uh, Do you choose Sirius over Dumbledore? Yeah. yeah. Go on. I just I, I like Sirius. He's the bad boy, the rogue. I think it's a lot more interesting dynamic uh, that he brings in than... than uh, Dumbledore's just kind of wise old ways. Also Gary Oldman. Also Gary Oldman. That is a reason. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, who are your mentors? Well, somehow I, I accidentally only chose like really flawed mentors who actually are, while teaching you valuable lessons, are not really great guys to be around. Uh, first of all, Bill, uh, the titular Bill from Kill Bill uh, franchise. Who must be killed. Who must be killed. Played marvelously by David Carradine. Uh, he really doesn't have a whole lot to do uh, until that final like 20 minute scene in Kill Bill Part 2. That's how he wins. But, I mean, when he shows up in that, you know, that whole exchange he has, that back and forth he has with Uma Thurman, um, I mean, really, you understand why this character has been driving this story, you know, for four hours. Um, yeah. Because David Carradine's performance is so good. And it's this kind of weird combination between uh, Zen Warrior and Old West Gunslinger. Which I think is just really kind of very much speaks to Tarantino's sensibilities uh, in terms of what he would find interesting, kind of a, a rogue mentor. Um, also, Mister from Stakeland, uh, a film that we discussed as part of our Shocktober marathon uh, last year. Um, again, the actor is so good, uh, and we talked a lot about how great he is on that episode. And we talk, talk. I mean, if you want to hear us heap love on that character in Stakeland, just go listen to that episode. 
because it's very good. But I think Mister is a very interesting role model um, for our young hero in that film. Uh, but again, not a nice guy. Uh, kind of like the Batman in All Star, <laughs> Batman and Robin, um, which is a flawed series from what I understand. But this idea of you know I'm going to mold you into a warrior, or I'm going to kill you, one or the other. Uh, speaking of I'm going to mold you into something great or kill you. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention J.K. Simmons' Academy Award-winning performance as Terrence Fletcher nice. in my favorite film of last year, good Whiplash. Call. Good yeah. call. I mean, God, talk about evil mentors. Uh, wow. I mean, I don't want to say too much because I think I might spoil the movie if I go on about it too long. Um, but Simmons just knocks it out of yeah. the park. Um, is just absolutely despicable, but delivers one of the... A line that is simultaneously inspirational and horrifying. There are no two words in the English language more harmful than good job. Um, so, I mean, how could I not mention Terrence Fletcher? I mean, Simmons got that Academy <laughs> Award for a reason, uh, and it was my favorite movie of 2014. Uh, I'm still in love with Whiplash. I, I revisited it recently, and it still blows me away. Um, and that performance is just amazing and really speaks to how complicated a mentor relationship can be. I mean, Arthur, I think, you know, did went an interesting route and picked some really inspirational mentors who, who you could actually, you know, see yourself wanting to be taught by and, and, you know, learn something from. Uh, whereas the mentors I picked are not necessarily guys you want to spend a lot of time around, but they do have some valuable lessons to teach. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, first and foremost, I want to give a double pick because they are the same mentor, and that is Vito Corleone and Walter White. Um, as uh, uh, They mentor a Jesse Pinkman and a uh, Michael Corleone uh, in The Godfather and Breaking Bad, respectively. Uh, again, not so much good mentors, but sort of bad mentors, but yet um, very, very interesting. <laughs> Breaking bad mentors, more like. Shazam. <laughs> um, so, like that very much. In terms of my reading of Stakeland, um, I have to mention Tyler Durden as a mentor. Um, and, I, yes, I don't have a Fincher rule, so I don't have to worry. So, about Dustin can mention these things for me. As often as I want. Although, the rule doesn't really stop him ever. Desert. No, I try to I try to keep myself in check, especially after we did that Fight Club episode. So there is that, and finally, you know, my favorite mentor of all time, help me, Obi Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Alec Guinness is fantastic. His development as Neil McGregor in the uh, in the prequels is possibly the only redeeming quality uh, therein. And I there was else. actually about to say, I mean, he really that role as a mentor is very much expanded in the prequels, and I think Ewan McGregor's performance is probably the best thing about that series. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so, I uh, love him very, very much. I love the idea of taking people places they don't especially want to go, but they kind of need to go. And the the, the, the subtle manipulation, um, as you mentioned, J.K. Simmons' um, you know, role in Whiplash, um, taking you in a place you don't really want to go, but it's sort of needful that you go there. And uh, it's a little less morally ambiguous than uh, his role in Whiplash, but I think that is an important characteristic and trait of all good mentors, mm. and uh, it's just good times to be had by all oh, this Star Wars. I mean, come on. Star Wars. So, enough said. Uh, thank you very much for that gameplay. Dear listener, we would love to hear your favorite mentors in cinema and on the small screen, perhaps in books or other media. I don't know. Uh, so let us know who gave you these. <laughs> who told I, you about these? I, I learned it from watching you. <laughs> 
And so, uh, we would love to hear that. Let's move on, though, and conclude the show, as we always do, with what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Mr. Dalton Stewart, are you fired up this week? I am. So, by the time you're hearing this, dear listener, um, Mad Max Fury Road will be in cinemas, and I am so, so, so excited. I know this is not the first time I've mentioned it on the show, so the reason I'm actually talking about Mad Max is because I read an um, article in a, uh, a month-or-two-old issue of Game Informer, uh, their cover story was a forthcoming uh, Mad yeah. Max video game from yeah. the creators of the Just Cause series. Man, it looks a lot of fun. Yeah. I watched a trailer for it, and it looks really interesting. Seems to really capture... Twisted Metal 7, right? No. Oh. Uh, it, it's more like uh, Batman, the Batman games, but with oh. uh, badass cars. I'm sold. Yeah. Um, it really seems to capture that that spirit of, of the franchise. Uh, George Miller was really actively involved until principal photography on Mad Max Free Road started. Uh, but he was kind of there saying, yes, that works in my world. No, that doesn't. Kind of giving them, uh, kind of shepherding them and helping them shape, you know, uh, the Mad Max uh, world into a video game setting. So I'm really excited about that, and I am very excited about Mad Max Fear Road. I can't wait to see it. Um, it's going to be a blast. Um, I, I did catch up with the Avengers 2 Age of Ultron, and I liked it a whole lot. Um, there's an article on the Dissolve comparing it to Man of Steel, uh, specifically... The fact that so much time is devoted to the Avengers saving lives, where very little time is given to that in Man of Steel. And I think that is probably one of the most interesting things about Age of Ultron, other than James Spader's just ace's performance, is the fact that more than anything, this is about what makes superheroes wonderful, and is that they are heroic. That they put others before themselves, and they actually strive to protect people. Uh, And I think that's something that we're missing out you know, in this age of trying to further always up the ante in superhero movies, and now every one of them ends in a gigantic explosion fest. I mean, think about Blade Two; it ends in a fight between two guys. Uh, whereas now all superhero movies have to end in an obligatory explosion fest. Um, and this, you know, Age of Ultron is no exception. Um, but it does take time to really think about what it means to be a hero, and I think that's really valuable in a time where we're we're losing that in superhero films. I think. Uh, finally, the trailer for the latest epic uh, Netflix original series has been released. It is brought to us by the Wachowskis, which makes me very excited. It's called Sense 8. That is Sense as in your senses, um, and 8 as in the number 8, Sense 8, or which, you know, if you say it you know, real fast, is a Sense 8, which is someone who can feel things that other people are feeling, and it's about 8 people who all across the world all at once start feeling each other's emotions and feelings and share their knowledge and their skills. Um, so obviously those skills involve punching people real good because it's a Wachowski's joint. Um, so that trailer you know, shows us a little bit of the uh, fight and gunplay we can expect, but also hints at some of the metaphysical, uh, philosophical questions that will be at play because, again, a Wachowski's joint, and that's what they're all about. But I'm very excited about that. I'm going to eat your brains and take your knowledge. That's right. Um, so that will be dropping on Netflix June 6th, I believe. So I'm very much looking forward to that. Go <clears throat> seek out that trailer now because it made me... I was kind of curious about the series, uh, especially you know, the Wachowskis have had a hard time uh, making a punch land <laughs> the last 10 years or so. So I'm hoping this Netflix series is going to you know, just go over gangbusters because I really... 
I like seeing them do good work. Um, and I want them to keep doing good work so people keep giving them money. Because they've had three flops in a row. That's that's the that's death. That's, yeah. the cur- that's the curse in Hollywood, man. They'll give you one flop. They won't give you three. So I, I really hope this is going to help them springboard back and, and, you know, giving us that very unique creative vision that they have. So that's what I'm fired about this week in popular culture. Thank you very much. Arthur, I know you didn't start the fire, but do you have any fire you'd like to bring? I got a couple little things. <clears throat> the first couple smaller things, uh, my lovely wife, ugh, my lovely wife picked up uh, a copy of the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack for me, uh, which is really fun. And that's that's a solid soundtrack. That that movie had a great soundtrack. And it was I a can't lot of stop fun. this feeling deep inside of me. Um, and then also, I finally started watching. Uh, it went up on Netflix a month or so, maybe ago. Uh, the final season of Sons of Anarchy. Mm-hmm. I'm about four deep into that, and so I'm the last ride with with Sam Crow, and so uh, we'll wait to see how that turns out. His um, diction is so weird. Can I just say that? Who? Char- Charlie Hunnam or yeah? Oh, it's because he's British. So yeah, he's, his diction is so bizarre. He's got, trying to do that. Yeah, yeah his his American accent. It's always. like weird because he's trying to do like a, I don't know if it's like a southern thing, but he's in California, so he can't really yeah, be southern. It's, and it's it's strange. He, it's kind voice. of like uh, he's trying to affect a, an urban dialect. Yeah. Of some it, some English actors seem to struggle with American accents, and yeah. you know you always hear about American ac- actors doing English accents, and Terrible. I think it's harder for us to tell a bad English accent because we're not English, but we know a bad American accent when we hear one because yeah. we know what. Americans sound yeah. like um, some are better at it some are not so good um, yeah. and yeah Charlie Hunnam does seem to struggle with it sometimes yeah, yeah that's fair um, hey but he's in Crimson Peak so that should be fun excellent I'm, I'm on board how are you enjoying that last season so far so I mean it is it's Sons of Anarchy yeah. a lot of people dying a lot of people getting stabbed in the back I fell that off whole thing. I fell off in the fifth season yeah uh, six is up and down seven's it's off to a decent start and so I'm just interested to see how it plays out. I've already been with it for six seasons. I've got to see what ends. And so I'll, I'll, I'll keep watching because it is a guilty pleasure of mine. Uh, the final thing, though, is in, in a bit of gaming news, which is rare for me. Uh, but um, I'm actually excited about the uh, free PSN games for the month of May. Yeah. There were five released on PS4. Yeah. Well, they were some of them were cross-buys. That's the great thing about cross-buys. You end up getting a lot of free PS4 games. Yeah. And so of those, I've played three. Uh, and they're really solid. Unfinished Swan is one of the most beautiful games I think I've ever seen. I've, been I've never one, really appreciated art in a game I've been before, wanting to catch up with that for a while. But it's just really pretty to, to, to look at and watch. Uh, and then uh, Race the Sun. It's a is lot of fun. One. It's a lot of fun. I played it's very it for, addictive. I played it for yeah. about... I was like, oh, I'll, I'll check this out and see what's yeah. like. I played for two hours and didn't even realize it. Yeah. It's, and it reminds me, of, there's this Flash game I played in high school during like downtime computer class or whatever called Jet Slalom. Mm-hmm. It was exactly... I mean, it's pretty much the exact same game except Jet Slalom you didn't have objectives. Mm-hmm. You just race between these trees but it was very primitive like there's just triangles mm-hmm. and your jet looked like crap and so this is just like a really <coughs> beautified version of that with yeah. objectives and so that's a lot of fun and takes me back and the other one Ether One is just a really interesting kind of mystery game yeah I downloaded it I haven't checked yeah. it out yet uh, it really it was really engaging when I first started playing it kind of drew me in kind of those first story. person exploration games yeah. right yeah. yeah and so it was pretty solid I haven't checked out the other two uh, one was Really positive reviews was Mako Melee, which I've heard is really solid. Um, I had actually downloaded that, paid for that a few months ago. It's yeah. it's fun. It didn't really hold my interest, but you should check yeah. it out and see what you think. And then the other one was Ho Hokum, uh, yeah. which I haven't got to try, but it seems to be kind of a chill out and adventurous type game. Uh, and the other thing is, uh, I've really enjoyed Counter Spy, which was a free game a month or so ago. 
uh, which is just a really solid side-scrolling type action espionage type game. And finally, I'm, I'm delving more into Dragon Age, uh, which I feel like I just run around, do side missions, and create armor and weapons for my, my troop, and it's a lot of fun. How, how many hours have you put into it so far? I wouldn't say very many. Probably 8 to 10 is minimal. Arthur, I've put 90 hours into that game. Yeah. 90 hours of my life <laughs> gone. And I can't stop. <laughs> I can't stop. Do not get sidetracked. <laughs> Try to beat the game. I'm still <clears throat> got like four main story quests from oh, what I'm I can like tell. I'm down in the Hinterlands doing all these side missions. Of, mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I got stuck in the Hinterlands for about 20 hours. Yeah, I was here. down there for a while just doing side missions. And that's oh, all, every you time... Ram meat? I'll be back. Yeah. Oh, Ram meat? Yeah, let me go get that for you. <laughs> yeah. Let me do literally everything. I got chased around the island by a bear for a while. <laughs> Because all my followers had no health. I, man, I, <laughs> I'll, I'll start the game thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna do the next big story quest. Yeah. I'm gonna try. Nope, I'll, yeah. I'll start a podcast and just clear out the next map area I've unlocked. Yeah. It's so much time of my life, man. You shut the, up, Dustin. That was a rough thing, man. Oh, so I like I stuck in this area. There's a bear, <laughs> and like he starts chasing me. I run into more bears. I, like, well, screw you guys. I, I was not ready. To, there's a rift in the hinterlands I was not equipped for. And just like bashing my head against a brick wall. I tried it like six times and finally gave up. When do you start fighting dragons, man? Because I saw a dragon. Yeah, don't. You're not ready. I went out and saw it. <laughs> don't do it. And it started spinning fireballs at me. I'm like, screw I'm you. out of here. I'm gone. And they're, I had to go up to uh, the mage's town, I think it is. I can't remember what it's called. I know what you're talking about, yeah. And I had to go up there. And I could go through this one area and there's a dragon circling around. And I was like, nah. That's, I had to take this long way around, all the way back across the map to get back to there. Go go back to him once you hit about level eleven or twelve, and you'll 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 smoke him. But yeah, I, there was a dragon. I was like, I can beat this dragon. We're all no. There's like a, I found out later it's like a level twenty dragon, yeah. and I just tried and tried for hours. <laughs> it's so much fun, Arthur. I'm so oh, glad you're. I'm glad you're enjoying it. What uh, what are you playing as? I am a warrior, and I'm a oh, I can't think what's called. Canary level thirty six mage. Canary warrior. Yeah. yeah. I'm a human rogue. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah. All right, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. We'll stop. It's a very gentrified canary, too. Yeah. So I got a red mohawk and a red beard. Sweet. It's like me. It's a giant ram. My, my human rogue has a sweet fade, so yeah, <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. All right, Dustin, enough video game talk. We're sorry. Yeah. <laughs> How do you find Will Smith in a snowstorm? <laughs> you look for the fresh prince. <laughs> <laughs> Dustin. <laughs> Fire away with your fired up upness. Uh, I have two things um, I want to say before I get into a longer screed of fired up upness uh, this week. Um, first and foremost, um, I was able to get the unadulterated, untainted Star Wars episodes 4, 5, and 6 as a writing background uh, whilst I uh, completed my massive... Uh, first project in my PhD program, which was not good. Um, your prayers are much welcome, dear listener, <laughs> for grace and mercy upon me as I am graded uh, for what I um, blew my nose upon and turned in. Uh, but uh, that being said, I, I love seeing Han not only shoot first, but Han shoot only, and the massive explosion of Greedo. Uh, I'd forgotten uh, just really? how beautiful and wonderful that all is. Also, um, this is an Oklahoma-specific thing, but I do know MeTV is syndicated throughout the world, and uh, it is, uh, it's throwback television yeah, and yeah. movies and whatnot. Um, Sci-Fi Saturdays, uh, let me just tell you, dear listener, Star Trek, the original series, Batman, Wonder Woman, The Adventures of Superman, and then Sven Gulli. Uh, Sven Gulli is a horror host. I have a deep, soft spot for horror hosting um, on uh, public <laughs> access. And it's just so much fun. Do check it out. And this all relates to uh, something that's going on as I was pr- finishing up this project. Uh, dear listener, school's out. 
Uh, and I am so glad. And there are so many things that I actually want to see, want to read, want to watch. And I'm going to get to do most of that now uh, over the course of the summer. I am going to catch up with the Daredevil series, which I've only gotten two episodes into. I understand it's a 13-hour movie, and that just makes me happy. I hope you like it. I, I, I do, too. Text me when you get to the end of episode two. Okay. Yeah. <sighs> really? That's yeah. the highlight. Just, just, te- just text. I don't want to say anything else. Just text me when you get to the end of episode two. Okay. So good. Fair enough. I'm four minutes in, and then I had to stop because I have obligations. I'm... Also, because of my coursework, I did this avant-garde um, cinema institutions thing, and um, avant-garde books are kind of interesting. So I've got Joyce's Ulysses, and then I've got House of Leaves to read over the course of the summer. you got to read House of Leaves? I'm going to. Oh, man. Because I want Is to. Is that for school or for fun? For me. Let me know how that goes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm always fascinated when people undertake House of Leaves. Okay. Uh, it seems like it's crazy town. It's, yeah, because it's so daunting. It's I mean, it's so, super surreal, so it's right up your alley. And uh, on the list also is Night Film, which I have not yet picked up yet um, as a book, and I want to see it as well. And I'm very, very excited to spend uh, part of my summer doing uh, some of these kinds of things. Uh, finally, I have in the mail, on the way, a functional working Super 8 camera. Uh, which I'm going to use to make an art film over the course of the summer, and I'm very excited to do that, Um, possibly using um, some of the shooting time of a little web series me and frequent listener Caleb Bessler are putting together called Lindley Inn. Yes, I'm going to pimp it now. Um, There will be a video um, of a teaser of the series. Very, very excited. I believe you mean Caleb Suckett Bessley. That's Um, the one. That's the one, and uh, so we're going to be working on some of that this summer, and I'm going to be making some art films with Super 8 scanning back over to digital and uh, good times will be had by all. That's, that's exciting. I, it's going to be a good summer. You though. should do a Kickstarter, and uh, if backers pay enough, they too can have um, really dismissive nicknames like Brad Leperson and Caleb Suckett Vesley. I'm hoping so. And <laughs> or uh, Brigham uh, Jimmy Olsen Cole. We want your money. We want all your money because it turns out making movies ain't cheap. So uh, there you go, dear listener, for that fired up and from all of us. And thank you for listening so far into a highly undisciplined episode of the Good Trash Honor Cast. But I don't care because Arthur has to edit it, not me. When this episode drops, you'll be able to hear me on uh, former co-host Caleb Masters' Cast Beyond the Wall podcast talking about episode 5 of Game of Thrones. So if you like this show and you like listening to my stupid voice talk for some reason, and you like Game of Thrones, you should check that out. Remember, that's Cast Beyond the Wall. So we should probably tell them what we're going to watch next week, right? Hey, next week we're going to watch Hook, which is a sequel to a literary um, movement, I guess, sort of, or novel. So yeah, it's not a sequel to a film, but it's a sequel to the idea of Peter Pan, so that'll be fun. So, um, Robin Williams, Steven Spielberg, good times. Obscene fathers will be had by all. Um, and uh, we're going to have a good time. Uh, with that um, in the meantime dear listener check out Blade check out anything read some weird books uh, read some comics do something and have a conversation with people about media and culture because it turns out those conversations are what make it all so worthwhile and we'll see you all next time Shake the dreams, the fire inside of you.
How's it going? Hope you guys are having a great time listening uh, to the show. Dalton, why is your penis on the table? Shut up. Quiet. Shh. Just, just listen to my voice. Follow me on this journey. Go with it. Come with me. Go with it. Just go with <laughs> oh it. Enjoy it. Take my hand and go on this journey with me.